Welcome to the Head to Heart in the Briefcase podcast, where we take constantly evolving workplace psychology research and translate it into easy to understand bites that leaders like you can use in your everyday life. I'm Alexandra Hunt. And I'm Natalie Grogan. Today, we're going to be talking about emotional intelligence again. Um, This is part two. If you missed part one, you can go back um, and check it out. It was our third episode right after our Q&A session on entitlement. You know, as promised from the last episode, we're going to talk more today about the impact of emotional intelligence on generational differences, teams, and organizations as a whole. Part one was really focused on individuals and kind of the foundations of emotional intelligence. So we're going to elaborate on that today and expand it into the other areas of business. All right, let's dive in. All right. Yeah. In episode one on emotional intelligence, we talked about the five competencies of emotional intelligence, which to recap are self-awareness, self-regulation, motivation, empathy, and social skills, and really how having higher levels of each of those impacts a person's ability to do their job, how they behave at work, and how they interact with others. Natalie, you took us on a really great deep dive of those five competencies on episode one of emotional intelligence. And one of my favorite things from that was when you talked about how like sometimes other people get the promotion ahead of you or the job that you thought for sure you were a lock in for and how that using emotional intelligence makes you step back and decide, okay, I'm disappointed, but this isn't a personal attack. there's things I might not be considering. They might've just been more qualified instead of just being letting that anger or that hurt or frustration or disappointment completely hijack the entire situation, giving you time to respond to the situation versus react to it. Yeah. I think that's an example we can all relate to because we've, most of us have probably been up for a promotion at some point and many of us didn't get that promotion. So it's easy to naturally feel like, it's personal because you're upset about it. But when you think through the entire situation and the people that are involved in making that decision and you know the reasons that they have for making that decision, higher emotional intelligence allows you to step away from that feeling of personal attack and, um, and deal with it much better. And don't get us wrong. Sometimes it is a personal attack. We acknowledge that sometimes supervisors just really suck. And in that case, emotional intelligence also allows you to recognize, hey, they're making this decision personally against me. Is this a place I want to work? Is this an environment I want to be in? Versus a disproportionate reaction or one that you might not be so proud of looking back once you've cooled down a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about this in both of the um, main episodes that we did. We probably talked about in the Q&A too, but that whole responding versus reacting. And if you give yourself a little bit of time, five minutes, 15 minutes, whatever that is, um, you tend to have a better sense of reality in the way that you are responding to something that's unfavorable versus if you just, you know, quickly snap back and, um, and don't think about it. So, you know, developing emotional intelligence really helps calm that down and give you the tools to make those more responsive decisions. 
Yes, exactly. There is a an old proverb, a harsh word stirs up anger, but a gentle answer turns away wrath. And it's like, all oh. right, how can I have that gentle answer? How can I avoid the harsh word? Like there's some situations that I have been reflecting a lot on lately. I reacted with medium level harsh words. And it's like, man, that made it so much worse. Not that it wasn't warranted, not that it wasn't called for, um, but just acknowledging that, you know what, had I handled that differently or had I decided that that situation didn't quite warrant that response, think of how different that entire outcome would have been. Like think of how that gentle answer could have turned away. There wasn't really wrath that came from it in that situation. But it just, I, I think about that a lot of like, man, how could I have handled that differently? And do, do I wish I would have, you know what I mean? Which is another aspect of emotional intelligence is reflecting on the way that you did react and kind of adjusting behavior in the future if you deem that to be what you should have done, right? Yeah, exactly. I had um, a personal situation recently where someone did something to me that was unkind and I didn't respond. I waited a few days and I wrote a very thoughtful response back that showed that I had empathy and cared for this person. And, you know, I understood that it was coming from a place of hurt inside of them. And, you know, I I don't think that the way that they presented themselves was their intention. Then they came back a few days later and with a much more thoughtful, less abrasive response. Um, But then there is a point to this. (laughs) Then this person did a similar thing to me again. And um, I I reacted that time. And I actually think that the reaction was um, warranted this time, because sometimes it is sometimes you have to get your point across in a way that is very direct and, and just shuts it down. So it's really about knowing when to use those tools and, you know, <laughs> appropriately. But that is where the emotional intelligence comes in, because even if you choose to react or choose to have, I mean, it's still a response at that point versus a reaction. A response doesn't mean you're cool, calm and collected. It just means that you've taken the time to think through how you're going to respond or react to the situation, right? But sometimes it, it does warrant that. And the emotional intelligence component to that is having that internal conversation, right? Yep. And there's another thing we didn't discuss um, last time because I don't want to go through the whole thing. It would be very tedious, especially without the visual of it. But there's something called the nine levels of emotional intelligence uh, pyramid. So if we think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the bottom level, of course, of the pyramid is the widest. And each level above it builds upon that lowest level. So in the nine levels of emotional intelligence pyramid, the first level is emotional stimuli. So emotional stimuli is something that occurs that stimulates and an emotion inside of you. So most people are able to recognize, you know, and uh, something that stimulates their emotions, that there's something happening that makes them feel something. The next level up is emotion recognition and perception and expression of emotions. So that's really being able to label what the feeling that you have is, what the emotion that you're feeling is, and understanding why that is occurring. So an example would be someone yelled at me 
therefore I feel scared or sad or angry. The next level above that is self-awareness. So, you know, most people have the first two levels down by the time they're adults and go to work. Um, but self-awareness is something that we have to really continually develop. And we talked about that um, statistic in the last episode that you know, 95% of people think that they are self-aware, but only five to 10 actually are. So when we talk about self-awareness as a building block of this emotional intelligence pyramid, and it's only the third up out of nine, that's a really important skill to hone because all of the other pieces of emotional intelligence growth sit on top of that. So we've also mentioned this before. Um, one of the tools that I use specifically for the workplace in developing self-awareness is um, the predictive index behavioral assessment. Others that are good for you know, not workplace related, but just kind of understanding yourself or uh, the DISC assessment is good. Um, Myers-Briggs is another one that's commonly used. Um, Enneagram, you know, any of those are not really developed for the workplace, but can be used as a personal self-development tool, self-awareness development tool. And when Natalie says not really developed for the workplace, what she means is please don't use these in the workplace, especially for pre-hire, because that does put you at legal risk. Just as a little side note there. Yeah, that will come up in our podcast for sure, because um, those assessments measure neuroticism, which is not something that you're allowed to measure in the pre-hire process, but you can use it in um, developing employees and things like that after they've been hired. So self-awareness is critical um, for, you know, in these building blocks. And the next above that is self-management, which is being able to control yourself. So when we talked about emotional hijacking in the last episode, that's when you have a really physical response to emotional stimuli, which is, you know, your heart rate goes up and you start sweating and, you know, you have a physiological reaction self-management is being able to recognize kind of when that's happening and keeping control of yourself and your body and even your reactions. The fifth level from the bottom is above self-management is social awareness, empathy, and discrimination of emotions. So social awareness is really that awareness of how you impact others and how others are feeling based on the way that you are or somebody else is treating them or behaving or communicating with them. So that would be like, I said something that hurt the person across from me's feelings and I can see in their face and their body language. I can deduce by the tone of their voice. Oh, I think I might've just hurt their feelings. Even if I didn't intend to, it's recognizing that in others. Yeah, exactly. And so that's where we start to see the impact of emotional intelligence on the things we're going to talk about today where with teams and organizations is really how are how am I impacting those around me and vice versa? How are they impacting me? And then the next above that, we won't go all the way up because it gets pretty deep into things that we probably won't be able to solve for people today, but um, social skills and expertise in emotions. So that's really kind of the goal that we're heading toward when we do these emotional intelligence workshops is that expertise in emotions and honing the social skills to create not only 
great relationships, but also teams that can get work done together because they understand, you know, how they're impacting each other and are able to solve problems together. I'm really excited to get into this because I've been on several teams where we have excellent team dynamics. We really feed off of one another well. We understand where the boundaries are. It's kind of almost unspoken um, because there's just that that fluidity. But then I've also been a part of teams where there's always that that one or two people who there's just that disconnect, right? So whether it's somebody who's the jokester, who's constantly being sarcastic, constantly making fun of other people on the team, but it's all it's all in good fun. They're just kidding and you shouldn't get been out of shape about it and it really pulls away from the productivity of the team. Or there's the person who is just really quiet and doesn't say anything. And there's that perception that they're not really contributing anything. But really looking at, okay, when we understand the people that we're on the team with, and when we understand, okay, there's the emotional factor and the emotional intelligence there, it helps the team flow more smoothly. And it doesn't solve every team dynamic issue, but it really helps create a good foundation. It does. And to that point, when we look at things, you know, when we start at that self-awareness level and like I keep talking about the uh, predictive index behavioral assessment and we understand about ourselves that, so for example, I understand about myself that the reason that I'm quiet in large meetings is because I am lower on the extroversion scale and I need time to think things through before I want to come and present them to a group of people. So it's really about having fully baked ideas before you present them versus talking it out, you know, talking out a half baked idea, which is a higher extroversion thing. So my observable behavior to you would be that I'm quiet and I don't speak up in meetings. I have the self-awareness though to understand why I don't do that and therefore I can ask for the topic in advance or you know, get ask for an agenda, something like that. Um, and then as we move up this pyramid, that's when your coworkers, you know, we share that information with one another and then once I shared that with you, now you understand that why I'm not speaking up. And then the social skills part of it is you can then send me an agenda because you know that I'm not going to speak up unless I have that, right? Or is that too much like yeah. a, using it as a crutch? I don't know. <laughs> like, well, and, and that's actually what I was about to acknowledge is it's also finding a balance there because I know there have been meetings that Natalie and I have been in together where I'm kind of, I'm not like, hey, let's talk everything through out loud. Like I like to take, pull stuff back, think through it myself and then talk about it as well. But I'm a little bit more extroverted in that sense than Natalie is and, and I'm more prone to talking things out. And there's some meetings where the whole purpose of the meeting is a brainstorming. I think back to this one branding consultation that Natalie and I did where I was leading the consultation for the for this brand management for this firm and it was walking us through different exercises some of those exercises were a little bit more uncomfortable for Natalie because it was talking about, hey, when I say this, what's the first thing that comes to mind? And the whole intention behind the exercise is to not be premeditated, to not have that time to think through and think about what the best answer could be, but what's off the cuff because that's the way the exercise is structured. And so there was, it's, it's acknowledging that, like she said, not using it as a crutch because even though Natalie might not have loved those exercises, she also recognized and respected and appreciated, hey, that's that's the purpose of this. That helps us get to the end goal. So it's not just, okay, I'm just going to disengage and I'm not going to communicate. I'm not going to talk. Like this is outside of my comfort zone. It's And really, I should probably be letting her say this, but it's recognizing 
hey, this is uncomfortable for me. This is outside of my wheelhouse, but I know this is what's required to accomplish this task. So I'm going to push through that level of uncomfortability and, and get involved and engage. Yeah. And I, yes, that was a very frustrating exercise for me. I did recognize the whole time that it was because I just like can't think that fast on that level. And um, Alex was doing such a great job and being so patient with me. And I was like, you guys, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm getting frustrated, but like I am getting frustrated here. And you know, that all falls into this um, pyramid as well in terms of, you know, I had self-awareness my self-management was teetering um, in that moment. I was like, I know that this is not the appropriate way to react. So I'm not going to react, react, but I have to express that I'm getting kind of frustrated with this. But um, it was actually a great exercise and I'm glad we did it. <laughs> well, but, but to that point, I think that's a really beautiful example because that goes to show how you can work as a team when you know your team, right? I knew that about you. I understood going into the exercise, hey, Natalie isn't going to love this, but this is a critical component of this branding packet that we were doing. And so it was acknowledging that, it was knowing ahead of time, all right, I know Natalie's not gonna like this, but I know that she's gonna really pull through and give us some really golden tidbits there. And she did, she always does. And it was having that expectation and having that conversation of like, hey, I know this is uncomfy, I know this isn't fun, but I know we can do this. I support you and having that patience and having that just the open dialogue and mutual respect. And it ended up being an incredibly productive and fruitful exercise because we both understood where the other was coming from and had that patience with one another. Yeah. And that's that social awareness, empathy level. And even above that, that social skills, uh, kind of expertise and emotions level, like understanding how to interact when there's that level of frustration too, I think is that social skills. Like, Hey, we know it's there, but we also know how to deal with it because we've done the work to understand um, emotional intelligence and self-awareness and all of that fun stuff. And I know we, we keep saying this level or this level, and we already gave you like the Maslow's hierarchy kind of visualization for a, a similarity there. But if as you're listening to this, you're like, man, I really I'm, I'm trying to draw this out or I really want a visual. Um, Natalie, we don't have a social media account for this podcast, um, but Natalie does post a lot about this podcast and the topics that we talk on her social media account, The Outstanding Company and on her LinkedIn at Natalie Grogan. And so if you want that visualization, you want that information, I'm assuming, Natalie, you post so much that you're going to have a graphic for people to look at and to understand and be like, okay, I can follow along as they're going. I can understand what they're talking about. And I'm sure we'll have it on our, our actual podcast website as well. Yeah, I'll put it on the podcast website. So we'll put it on the podcast website, but I can also uh, share a link in the show notes when we publish this to that post on LinkedIn, if that's helpful. Yeah, we'll definitely include that. Because I know for me, I'm a big visual person. So as we're doing this, I can conceptualize it in my head. But if I have a graphic in front of me, which I do, so I'm at a bit of an advantage to all of you listeners out there right now. Well, I wasn't necessarily going to even bring the pyramid up, but I just found it so valuable. I, I, I wasn't going to bring it up because I realized that it is nine layers of pyramid to talk about without a visual. Um, but I really do love this and how it 
helps visualize what you need to develop before you can move on to the next thing. Oh, absolutely. And I think as we continue on talking about the men versus women, generational differences, team dynamics, sociocultural factors, like all of that today, keep that pyramid, um, just continue to keep it in mind. On that topic, men versus women, I don't want to spend too much time on it, um, but I think it's something that people are just curious about and interested in. So there was one study um, that I read that was based on perception of facial expressions uh, between men and women. And so this was uh, developed to help identify how men and women perceive emotions differently in other people's faces. So, well, <laughs> go ahead. I, I do have a comment I want to make, but I think it'll be more appropriate in a second. So keep going. Oh. Okay. So it, it was interesting. So it turns out that men more often perceive that there's no emotion to be perceived at all than women do. So rather than, you know, if I'm making a face at the guy who's sitting across the table from me, he might not read into that at all. And that kind of aligns with a lot of my, you know, interactions with the men in my life too, is that they just don't, it's not that they're ignoring your emotions, that it's just not something they perceive as being an emotion or strong enough to warrant a response. Well, which that's perfectly understandable because we are biologically wired differently and to recognize different things and have different like intrinsic motivations and different perceptions of things. And we look at the world so differently. I think I might've shared this before, but if not, it'll be fresh now. Um, back at when, before my husband and I got married in premarital counseling, our premarital counselor told us men speak blue and see blue. The world from their perspective is blue. Women speak pink and see pink. The world from their perspective is pink. And you have to try and find the purple because there is that emotional, mental recognition difference of knowing, hey, I'm making a face right now that says, I really want to leave. I'm not enjoying this party. I'm tired. I want to go home. And my husband could be seeing that face and thinking, oh, I bet she has a headache <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Not because he's stupid, not because he doesn't know me or because he doesn't care, but because I am sending a message in pink and he is reading it in blue. Yeah, that's a great example. And uh, yeah, I can totally relate to that. Um, the other one, so I'm interested in your perspective on this because I'm going to say it in a kind of tech, I'm going to say this in more of a technical way. So the study found significant gender differences in the perception of the non-target emotions. So the non-target emotions being, um, you're making a sad face, I interpret that as anger or something like that. You know, I'm, I'm labeling it as something that it's not. Um, so found significant gender differences in the perception of non-target emotions, as well as in the perception of an absence of emotions in the face, such that men rated the non-target emotions as more intense than did women even when there was no emotion at all. That's interesting. Okay. I think I understand what you're saying. I'm going to give a practical example. Tell me if this is interpreting this correctly. So non-target emotion or void of emotions on the face. Um, 
so the non-target emotions, so there's, there's absence of emotion and then there's non-target emotions. So the non-target emotions would be, um, my goal as the researcher is showing you a face of someone who's sad, but then you as the subject labeling that as something that was not the target emotion that I intended you to see. And then there's the absence of emotions also. Gotcha. Okay. So let me see if I'm understanding this correctly. So non-target emotion, I, you know what, actually, I think this has everything to do with how well you know the person. Like, I think people who know me well, not because they have my expressions memorized, but because they understand my character and they just know me better, know that when I'm making a certain face, that's what that means because they just know me. So I think there is a component there of the relationship between the two people transmitting the emotion, emotional signals. I'd be curious to know, like, was this, I'm assuming this was just like a, like a random picture of a person for the study, not like, oh, this is a picture of your friend from high school making this face or whatever. Yeah, and I'd be interested to go back to the paper and see, because there's always a section on limitations of this research. I wonder if they have in there that it doesn't take into account familiarity at all, because it is every participant would see the same series of people's faces on the screen and that who they didn't know. Because like, I know when I'm trying to interpret not even consciously trying to interpret an expression. But when I'm interpreting an expression, I will often, I think I often would pull past experiences and other expressions and kind of almost like this mental computer cross-reference system of like, okay. And again, I'm not saying this is all conscious. Like, I feel like this would be more of like a, a subconscious thing. And I don't know if this is true at all, but it just seems like that's how I would think about it or like how my brain would compute the expression of like, okay, that face when that, when I have seen this face in the past, it's meant this, this, or this. And so it could mean one of these three things and it's more often this, so it's probably this. And I, I don't really know this person, but I can see this. So I'm going to go with that. Does that make sense? That is, that is the way it works, actually. Um, oh, wow. Well. So <laughs> Look at me, you're psychologist. Constantly, you're constantly making these judgments subconsciously based on all of your life experience. So that is exactly what happens when we go into fight or flight mode. So when you go into that fight or flight mode, you're not thinking through the whole scenario of why that's happening to you. You're having a visceral reaction to something, right? So when I was living in New York City, there was I was at an Argo Tea near Columbus Circle and sitting there doing work, and there was a shooting right outside. And ever since then, whenever I see an Argo Tea, which actually isn't that often down here, but um, since they don't have them here, but whenever I see an Argo Tea, I still have that little fluttery heart, you know, butterflies in my stomach feeling because of that incident. However. I don't think about that incident anymore. I don't replay the whole day in my mind. I don't actually know until I stop to think about it why my body and brain reacted the way that they did. So you're constantly having this, um, your past experiences roll through your brain subconsciously in order to protect you from potential danger in the future or in order to direct how you're supposed to behave with something. So your presumption is actually completely correct about, um, you know, judging people based on past experiences or judging facial expressions or actions based on your past experiences. And it is totally a subconscious process. 
we go through constantly every day. Well, and, and you said, you also mentioned the no emotion at all face. And there's just one thing that comes to mind for me with that. And that's the, I hate this language and I hate like this term for it, but it's so, it's such a like common colloquialism that it's like RBF, like resting B word face of like, you have no emotion on your face. Some people's resting face is happy. Some people's resting face looks angry. Some people's resting face looks just nobody's home. It's just completely blank. Um, but people perceive those differently. Like there, there was this time I was at the gym and I was on the elliptical and I was kind of like looking around and there was a girl on elliptical, a couple down. And she just had like this, she kind of like glanced over at me, but then just kind of went back straight forward. And she just had this completely like resting face, no emotion, no nothing. And I 100% interpreted that as like, Oh my goodness, she's judging me. I'm going too slow. She thinks I'm fat. She's wondering what I'm doing here. Like she's for sure being like this girl. When in reality, then when I stop to think about it, it's like, okay, stop projecting my own insecurities onto this other person's completely blank expression who I've never seen before. She has no reason to think those things. And even if she did, who really cares? Because I don't know her. Um, but recognizing that, nope, that was just a blank face. She's working out just as hard as I am. Why am I reading into that? And not necessarily just that example, but I feel like that's, that was such, that struck me so much of like, okay, how do I interpret no emotion? How I, how do I interpret resting faces? And am I projecting myself onto them and my own insecurities, or am I just taking them for face value, pun fully intended there? Yeah. So there, if we think about what the study is saying with men rated, um, non-target emotions more intense than women did, even when there was no emotion at all. So there are, it's interesting because I don't think that this happens as much both ways, but I've heard women in the past get really frustrated because men are like, oh, come on, smile or cheer up or something like that. I was literally just thinking of that. I was full on thinking, this explains why men are always like, oh, come on, let me see a smile. It's like, oh, smile. Yeah, cheer up. (laughs) And it's because there's no, they're rating these non-emotions as something that, you know, they're, they're not at all. So they're taking maybe that resting face as you're you being sad or angry or something like that. But I don't I don't hear that as much in the opposite direction or maybe at all where um, women are telling guys to cheer up because maybe they have like the study a better understanding of what the facial expressions mean. Well, I, I'd be curious to hear the like an educated male's perspective on this. So if we have any listeners who are men who have an opinion on this or have an experience or a story, please do us a favor. Please call into our voicemail on the link in the show notes. Send us an email, hello at hhbpodcast.com. Super curious to hear your experiences and your thoughts on this because obviously we're two women, so we have our perspective and our life experiences. But I'm very, we're very curious to hear what, what you men out there think regarding this. Yeah. And we're not trying to upset anybody either. So none of our, I mean, some of the research is the research, the rest is speculation. And we're just kind of trying to translate it into, um, you know, everyday. Easy to understand bites leaders like you can use in your everyday lives. (laughs) (laughs) But actually, yes, exactly. Seriously though, this is, 
no offense meant we're speaking about this through our own experiences, which is all we can do. We can't speak to the yeah. experiences of others. Yep. So on that topic too, and on the topic of not offending anybody, um, we do want to touch on generational differences um, because I did find some interesting work out there in that area. Which I got to say, this is the part of emotional intelligence that I am most eager to discuss because I think there is just, there's so much conversation to be had here. We are going to touch on a couple of things that might be kind of triggers for people, but we have to take this back to the whole person showing up at work and people's, you know, culture values and interests are part of that. That's the whole heart part of the head, the heart and the briefcase, um, because we are going to talk about some of the sociocultural factors that uh, predict emotional intelligence and, you know, that does make its way, a person develops emotional intelligence outside of work to begin with. They come to work with some level of it, and that is influenced by different you know, sociocultural factors. Absolutely. And, and really, guys, generational differences is such a foundational part and foundational component of this topic. I mean, think about society today, right? You get everything from... Oh, people need to toughen up to, oh, I'm triggered by everything. And you have that trigger culture masquerading as emotional intelligence. And so really finding that balance and really having that understanding of what's what, what goes where, where is emotional hijacking, where is like actual, yes, I need to give some um, credibility to this emotional reaction and, and really understanding and not just kind of wiping everything even just the other day, I had somebody say, when referencing their 16-year-old son of, oh, man, he's just one of those dang millennials who's just so emotional about everything. And so, and it's like, okay, lots of things to unpack here, which we don't have to write at this second. But this is it's a, it's such a foundational component to emotional intelligence. The research that we'll build upon here is a meta-analysis of 40 years of data showing an increase in both extroversion and neuroticism among college students. So this is measuring these traits that we talked about in the last episode um, in college students. So 40 years, that's a, you know, my whole lifetime. Um, that's a pretty long study. And it's, it spans some years where things changed very quickly due to technological developments and cell phones and social media and all of those things that are you know, really impacting people today differently than they impacted them 30, 40 years ago because they didn't exist. So also in this study, higher levels of emotional intelligence related to higher extroversion and lower neuroticism. And when I talk about neuroticism, if you didn't tune into the last episode, that's really how a person manages negative feelings and kind of the way that they see the world. So people who are highly neurotic see the world as kind of a threatening place. They see, they perceive that everything is uh, distressing or unsafe. That's very high levels of neuroticism. So you can see how that would be um, a challenge for your emotional intelligence if you feel like everything is a personal attack. The point really being from this study is that, you know, everybody can benefit from developing stronger emotional intelligence, but perhaps the younger generations might benefit even more. I mean, it makes sense that we would think that the younger generations could benefit more because 
They have less life experiences. They have less, um, well, that really. I mean, even, gosh, what, your, your prefrontal cortex doesn't stop developing for women until like you're 20 something, right? Yeah, but this, these studies were all of college students. So they measured people at the same age, just over 40 years. So you would have been, oh. you know what I mean? I thought, okay, I 100% understood among college students. I'm with you. Okay. I was thinking it was like they, it, it measured like it, 40 years ago, they measured college students and then measured how they went throughout their lives, not only college students for 40 years. Thank you for that clarification. Okay. Yeah. I 100% see how that could have a higher impact or, or have a bigger benefit for the younger generation because there's, okay, well, how about you just tell us why versus me speculating and giving my opinions as to why. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So that's the findings of the study. And I'm glad that we clarified that because that's really important. So um, I'm not sure, I don't remember whether it was 18 to 22 or what, but it was every year they were measuring people who were say 21 years old over 40 years. So measuring people at the same age to see if that age changed at any different time. Can I just ask a question? No. This is kind of a spoiler alert question. Do you think, or does the data support, I'll put it that way, does the data support the, I used the phrase earlier, the trigger culture masquerading as emotional intelligence? Does the data support anything that has to do with like, oh yeah, these younger generations have lower emotional intelligence or could benefit more from developing a stronger emotional intelligence, I think is the way you worded it. So I want to be careful not to draw fake assumptions because we live in a society now that validates everyone's feelings everywhere all the time. There's no such thing as, this is kind of dramatic, but there's no such thing as right and wrong. It's your truth. And so you have this entire generation of people who are being told, yeah, feel how you want to feel. There's nothing wrong with feeling the way you want to feel. And it's other people's jobs to cater to how you're feeling. That's a big question, but go. (laughs) Yeah. So there are, I understand what you're saying. And I think that we're going to probably get around to the full answer in in a more roundabout way. (laughs) That's all right. Because there are a lot of things that go into that. And one of the things that they mentioned, again, uh, this is probably going to trigger somebody, but um, is family, religion, education, business, and society as a whole very highly influence positive behaviors, but all of those things have less influence on behavior than they did previously in previous generations. So family dynamics have changed. Religion for many has, you know, fallen off. Um, The education system is different. People expect different things from their companies that they work for. Um, And then of course, society as a whole and changing values and, you know, changing the way things work um, influences that as well. So the study did cite, you know, those areas for creating a generation of people who are less emotionally intelligent and said that that increases social and workplace dysfunctional reactions to high stress situations. So to get back to kind of your point with the trigger culture there, um, they did cite that 
people now have more dysfunctional relations or reactions to high stress situations, which is that trigger culture, in my opinion, at least. I mean, it, it's there's been a almost tangible shift from you hurt my feelings. I need to figure out how to get over it to you hurt my feelings. You now need to fix everything and solve the whole issue and also be my slave for five years because you made me upset about something. Yeah. And that brings me to another point that they brought up, which could be a whole episode on its own and probably should, but about um, being present and mindful. So the younger generations now, and I'm probably included in this, I'm the elder millennial, um, but I I straddled the non-technology versus technology world. Um, But people tend to spend more time dwelling on past issues and rumors and then speculating about the future. And that removes the creativity of being in the present moment. And so that's might be why, you know, mindfulness is such a big industry now and presence is so talked about because uh, people have started to become aware that we're more disconnected than we have been previously. Well, and I'd be curious as well. I'm, I'm going to make the assumption. I don't have data at hand to back me up, but I know it exists. So that's because I've heard it and that's why I'm not really making an assumption, but I'm drawing a conclusion that if somebody really wants the data, I will do my best to find it. But that leads to an increase in the anxiety and the depression and all of that because we're so not present. We're so focused on the what ifs, on the future, on the, all of that. Yeah. And depression is usually associated with um, regret and worry about the past, whereas anxiety is worry about the future. So that's kind of bookends. You know, that is, those are the opposite of being present right? Mm -hmm. If you're present and just in this moment, then you don't have to worry about the past or what's coming next. You're just focused on what you're focused on. We're focused on what's in front of you and able to come up with more kind of creative solutions. Just for clarification, and this is something that I'm going to clarify because I'm so weirdly passionate about this (laughs) and it is a weird thing to be passionate about. We're going to define for you really quick as we're talking about generations just put like put one thing to bed. A millennial is anyone born between 1980 and 1995. That's like the most general accepted definition of millennial, which means for all of you people listening, millennials are people who are in the middle of their careers. They're people who are at the very youngest 27. So your 16 year old children, your college students, not millennials those would be Gen Z. Generally, Gen Z is, which millennials are also known as Gen Y, but Gen Millennials is the more common name. Gen Z is people who are born between 96 and the early to mid 2000s. So just key difference there because I'm very passionate about this because quick soapbox, everybody always talks about how millennials have no work ethic, are so trigger culture happy, all of that. And it's like, actually, that's not entirely true. And also every generation goes through that type of phase. Millennials are just the first generation where that phase of our lives, that college, that um, emotional, like high emotional hijackings or high amount of emotional hijackings happening. This is the first time millennials were the first time that that 
phase of their lives was broadcasted for all the world to see. Because like boomers, Gen X, all these other generations went through those same phases, just maybe not quite as extreme. They just weren't broadcasted across social media and the, the societal communication wasn't quite there. Okay, soapbox over. Just as we're mm-hmm. having this generation conversation, I just want to be very clear. That way, not everybody, because I know, I can even think of a couple of friends that I know that listen to this podcast who are going to associate everything with millennials. So friends, this is for you in the most loving way. Yeah, millennials aren't just anybody who's younger than you. (laughs) Uh, That's a really good thing to point out because you hear people just use that blanket term millennials all the time. And it is kind of, uh, kind of frustrating because like millennials actually kind of have their stuff together nowadays for the most part. It's just, it's a new generation's (laughs) turn to be in the bucket. It's just like millennial is an equivalent to hot mess express of a season of life these days, I feel like. So there are a few things here that were cited. So generational differences in emotional intelligence uh, are primarily due to social media and smartphones, to your point there. Um, And that could be why uh, these, uh, some of these things started to um, come out as millennials, um, as millennial related, I guess. There's also a generational increase in self-esteem, which is seemingly a good thing, assertiveness, but also narcissism. So, you know, feelings of importance, you know, you're better than other people, um, grand, grandeur, you know, that kind of thing. And um, if you think about those things all combined, that can actually be a negative cocktail, right? So self-esteem sounds like a good thing. Assertiveness sounds like a good thing. And then you throw in narcissism and now the motivation for the self-esteem and assertiveness changes. Um, It also cites what you mentioned, decreases in empathy and increases in depression and anxiety. And I've talked to so many people who believe that the younger generations are more empathetic and that is not the truth. Well, I think that for me comes back to that trigger culture, that emotional hijacking masquerading as emotional intelligence, because it's not the same thing. Yes. So exactly. So they have feelings, right? So there's more feelings. And that's where this whole idea of them being more empathetic comes from. The problem is they don't know how to direct or control those feelings. And that's where the emotional intelligence comes in, right? And so there's more when we talk about the higher levels of neuroticism, if you don't know how to control or direct your feelings, and it's a generation generation of higher neuroticism, that is, uh, you know, everybody's out to get me, you know, the world is a messed up place, more kind of negative feelings, then that really messes with messes with you when you don't know how to direct and control your own feelings. As it should, like, just to be clear, that there there is no reason that shouldn't mess with you. Like if you don't know how to handle it, if you've grown up in this culture and this society where this is what's in front of you, you've been fed this, I'm going to just call it a lie your whole life, that the world revolves around you. You, you speak your truth. It's like, well, of course that messes with you. Of course you don't know how to handle these emotions and handle this situation because you've been taught that it's okay. Everybody gets a participation trophy, right? You've been taught that it's all right. Everybody should cater to you and nobody should offend you. It's like that bubble 
a, a lesson we had in college and why one of my psych classes was about like, imagine like you live in a bubble, right? And I forget the term for this. Maybe you, you remember it, Natalie, but it's like we live in a culture. Historically, we've lived in a culture where sometimes bubbles merge, sometimes they overlap. But generally speaking, bubbles might bump off of one another for a second. But then we don't look at the person in the other bubble and say, you touched my bubble. How dare you? It's like, OK, yep, we address it. We handle it. We move on. Whereas now it's like the bubbles bump and people are reacting as though their bubble completely popped and it was a vicious attack. Yeah, it's like learned narcissism. I feel yes. like, yeah, we were kind of taught to feel that way. Everybody could just wait a few minutes and not re react and <laughs> respond instead. But I think there's also a level of empathy that that calls for of not being like, I know I can get really frustrated with that. And it's like, okay, wait, time out. It's not entirely their fault. Like when you think about the younger generations and as the study goes on and shows these things fluctuating, there has to be that emotional intelligence at play. And you have to think about it and realize this is what they've been taught. This is all they know. They've been told this is okay. So of course, this is how they're going to react because it's fed the beast in a sense, if you will. Yeah. Well, and sadly, the result of that is that in the study, the domains of well-being, self-control and emotionality. So using your emotions in an appropriate way. Um, demonstrated significant decreases over the 40-year time. So while we're increasing in things like narcissism, we're decreasing in the positive things like well-being, self-control, and um, using appropriate emotions. Oh, and sorry, that was um, also when they controlled for gender and geography. So this is kind of across the board. Honestly, the more I think about it, as much as it can be frustrating, it really just makes me feel kind of sad and make me feel like there's more we need to do to help combat and equip this, equip people to handle this. There is for sure. And, you know, the sad thing is that the decreases of well-being, self-control and emotionality are consistent with findings um, that indicate rising levels of psychopathy, so mood disorders, suicide-related outcomes, and um, and things like that. So there really needs to be a better focus on, you know, what's contributing to this. And one of those things um, also noted in the study was um, technology negatively predicted well-being and self-control, which means the more technology is in use, say social media or whatever it is, the less well-being and self-control people tend to have. Hmm. See, I'm very much somebody who when I hear like a statistic or I hear data that makes me like I don't like it, like I don't like the reality of it. My reaction to that is very much like, okay, how can we flip this? How can we use it better? How can we, like, instead of, like, uh, somebody gave me advice a long time ago of, like, if I was, if I ever had a reaction to an account that I was following on social media, like Instagram, for example, if there's ever anybody that I'm following that seeing this person's posts or this company, this brand's posts makes me feel like, oh, man, I really wish I could be like that. Or oh, look at how cool that is. Or but in more of like a, makes me feel worse about myself or worse about the reality of my life in an unhealthy fashion, 
then just unfollow them. Like, just don't use that as like, cause you can justify anything, literally anything. It's like, instead of using that as like, oh no, I follow them because even though it, it's like, it's not how I am now, it's who I want to be. And maybe I'll get there one day, but actually following people, using it as a tool for good of like, oh, I'm going to follow people that provide education for the areas I want to grow in. Right. And trying to find that balance. That's my reaction to it of like, oh, this is being used for bad. How can I make it good? Yeah. I tend to follow people who are motivating and you know, smarter than me, or at least I perceive that way, them that way, um, to help improve my quality of life. But I do notice myself saying, oh, all my friends are skiing all winter. I wish I was out there with them. But my priorities are just different right now. It's, of course, I would love to be doing that. But there's nothing like I could do that next year. I'm just working on business and different things right now. And so that kind of social comparison isn't great either. And I don't feel bad about it, but I have noticed that it's making me even just for a second, want to be somewhere else than where I am. And I don't like that. Was there anything in this data that discussed the implications of like imposter syndrome or just like people trying like spending social media, enabling people to spend more time trying to achieve these unattainable goals of mimicking the people they're following versus just doing things that make them happy or are related to the person that they really are? You know, I think we can make some assumptions. Uh, It didn't say anything specifically about that, but it did say social media leads to poor well-being because it not only replaces in-person communication um, that then kind of results in increased loneliness, but then it does facilitate that social comparison, um, peer envy, and things like that. So um, from those things, you can probably assume that people um, do start to feel less you know, confident in themselves and develop that imposter syndrome. I know, I mean, I'm not gonna lie, I've definitely felt that way before too. I'm like, am I doing enough? Oh, yeah. am, I, am I smart enough? How is this person comes up with these wonderful ideas? Well, who knows what the team is and, you know, resources that they have behind them or what their experiences are probably completely different than mine, but I still compare. I think we all do. I mean, something you and I talk a lot about that's not related to psychology, Natalie, is the current culture of the health climate and the quality of our food and that. And it's like, there's so many people who have these huge luscious gardens who are so great about cycling their crops and who are so great about having fresh eggs from the farmer down the road and they're not consuming all the toxins and the chemicals that are in our food and you and I talk a lot about like we just don't feel like we're doing enough like we look at these people who are in a completely different sphere of influence I I think that's so easy to, to fall captive to and it's finding that balance between being an individual, but also being an educated individual and trying to be the best individual you can, but without being entitled or without being like, just finding like, where does, where, where is that pendulum at? Would you say right now? Well, it's swung really far. This is opinion. This isn't from the data, but it's me in the direction of that. You need to be able to be everything and do everything because I 
have a lot going on, right? And um, I, I don't have children, so that's one aspect that I don't have to you know, be comparing myself with. But, you know, I want to work out all the time. I'm running this business. We have this podcast. You know, I decided last year that I had to have a garden because I, you know, didn't want to buy the crappy vegetables at the grocery store anymore. Well, my garden completely failed because you can't be good at everything, you know? You have to... You, you can, of course, have a career and kids and you can make a lot of things work, but you can't do everything very well. And there's this kind of notion out there or that you perceive is that all these people have it all and can do everything and, you know, that everything's perfect. And um, it does lead to feelings of like, oh, well, I, why can't I get it together to do everything that they're doing? Oh, absolutely. And I really appreciate you sharing that because it just goes back to that that old adage that you and I try and live by of if you try to be everything to everyone, you'll be nothing to anyone. That we, I mean, we've directly applied that to branding and we work with when we're, when we're doing like strategic coaching for companies to help get their branding and their messaging and their their service offering streamlined. That's what we use a lot there. But it also applies in life as individuals too. If we're trying to be everything to everyone, then we're going to end up being nothing to anybody because we're just spread too thin and we're just trying to be all of the things instead of focusing where our strengths really lie. Absolutely. And that does impact your, our, our well-being um, because it's, it's stressful. And, you know, that word well-being has come up a few times in talking about the research. And I just want to touch on one kind of last um, aspect of that. So in the studies, they also explain that declining well-being, um, part of that is uh, academic pressure, so that's for younger generations, um, but also greater family instability and rising obesity levels. So those that was not opinion. That was actually from the study. Um, and then I just have one thing to think about with well-being, um, because I've seen it both ways, but I'm interested in your and our listeners kind of opinion on this. So um, most researchers and people who study this consider uh, well-being an outcome of emotional intelligence, like higher emotional intelligence, higher sense of well-being. But what if it's a component of emotional intelligence? So if you have a strong sense of well-being and that contributes to your emotional intelligence versus you have a sense of well-being because you have high intelligence, like a little bit of a chicken and egg situation. Why can't it be both? I think it is. I, I definitely think it can be both. I think you have to have, I, I think it's different levels of well-being, right? So you have to have a certain level of well-being to be able to have that emotional intelligence and that self-peace, if you will. But then I think as you work on your emotional intelligence, I think that level of well-being continues to grow and it does nothing but empower it to a certain extent. Wouldn't I mean, what do you think? Yeah, more like they're vines that grow together, right? Versus yeah. something was born first and or came after. How does all of this, we kind of talked about, we said we'd get, get to this, and I feel like here is a pretty good place to do it. How does all of this tie into teams? Because you have it with your individual self, you have it with the gener factoring in the generational differences, men versus women, that's kind of like laid the foundation now for, okay, when you're in the workplace and you're on a team, 
or even when you're just at home, because you I mean there's there's teams with, with inside the home, right? Um, you're on a team. How does this all play out? Yeah, so there are four main areas that emotional intelligence impacts on teams specifically. So the first is relationships, just interpersonal relationships, as you can imagine. Um, emotional intelligence is directly linked to variables like um, the establishment of appropriate relationships with other team members, um, cultures of collaboration, uh, conflict resolution, how people make decisions, how they trust each other, and also um, empathy for one another. I like how you said appropriate relationships with team members to where it's not like you rely on your team members at work to provide things that those relationships were never meant to provide. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it because I was going to say that there are so many different levels of being appropriate, having appropriate workplace relationships. Um, but what, the way you said it kind of encompassed them all. I mean, I can't take credit for it. It's really funny how we have like so many different preachers at church, but every time we are about to record this one particular preacher keeps it consistently giving the message the Sunday before and what he talks about, like he talked a whole thing this Sunday was about relationships and about how so many relationships crumble in the workplace, at home, friendships, because we put expectations on them and we try to get out of them things that they were never meant to provide. And so they just crumble under all that pressure. Yeah. I was thinking about that. Yeah. Well, yesterday we're recording this on a Monday of, oh man, this totally replies to that emotional intelligence factor and having those clear expectations, having that level set. And no wonder so many teams fail. I mean, I'm back in college. We had a whole unit based on team dynamics and the business school I went to the Kelly School of Business, there's so much data that goes out to show that people who graduated from Kelly are much more prone to healthier team dynamics because that is a fundamental component of getting a business degree from Kelly is understanding team dynamics and creating team charters and going so far above and beyond that when you get to the actual workplace, like if you're on a project together, you don't necessarily sit down and always create a team charter, but just having that foundation and having those fundamentals. And I never realized, like I kind of underappreciated that until I got into the workforce and over the last 10 to 12 years, it's like, oh, no, I, I see, I see what that, what that data or that statistic is talking about. Yeah. Well, they should do more of that in business schools for sure. Maybe all schools <laughs> working on the team dynamics, but um, yeah, that's why we do what we do now is to help people go through that process that they didn't get, you know, at wherever they went to school or wherever they've worked before. They did. And it really ties back to the foundation of the team dynamics being that self-awareness and awareness of others that we talked about in that pyramid, right? Understanding how people need to work, how they're motivated, um, and coming to like what you said, the mutual agreement on like the charter of how the norms of the team. Uh, well, absolutely. And there's so many tools and resources we can do for people who are on teams who are maybe listening and they're like, oh, well, I didn't go to a super awesome school like Indiana University, who shameless plug for because we beat Purdue in basketball this weekend. So <laughs> what, what? Um, but I didn't get that training. So where does this leave me? What tools or resources are there? And there's so many ways that you can help structure 
a healthy team, have healthy team dynamics and different things you can do. And we'll continue to share those throughout the course of this podcast. But today, as we talk about the emotional intelligence in teams, this is such a fundamental component that even if you just get this component down, it's going to make a huge difference in the team. Yeah. And I mentioned that, that there were four main aspects and there are not, there are three <laughs> I want to talk about. So um, I just had self-awareness and the awareness of others called out as something to talk about because um, that was you know, something we mentioned before. But so the relationships, right? The relationships between people and the team as a whole are extremely important in order to be able to make decisions and um, you know, move projects forward and accomplish goals together. And then conflict, managing conflict. So uh, a lot of people think that conflict is a bad word, um, but it's not. There's healthy conflict and unhealthy conflict. So a way to think about that is if you are all trying to present ideas for how something should be done or creative ideas or whatever it may be, unhealthy conflict would be arguing about it and yelling and talking over each other and that sort of thing. Whereas healthy conflicts would be being able to have a discussion about it and everyone present their ideas and, you know, talk through the pros and cons of each of them and come to some sort of agreement on, you know, mutual agreement on how to move forward. Something that comes to mind when you say, when you talk about conflict is it reminds me of a book by Patrick Lencioni called Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And that book is just dripping with emotional intelligence and dripping with practical tools, practical tips. So as you're listening to this, if you're like, all right, give me some meat and potatoes here of things I can do. In addition to the stuff that Natalie talks about, add that book to your, your reading list and you're going to see exactly how everything that, that we're sharing with you plays out real time in team dynamics. Yeah, that's a great book. And um, it's referenced a lot in the predictive index stuff that we use. They love um, Patrick Lencioni and he loves them. He was actually a speaker at their conference last year. Um, um, am I only jealous I didn't get to hear him? <laughs> I know. Yeah, so there's actually a tweet from Adam Grant a few weeks ago. And if you don't know who he is, um, he is kind of a popular science author. He's a professor at Wharton um, and he specializes in organizational psychology. So he's very familiar with all of these uh, topics. But his tweet said, building strong relationships is not about arguing less. It's about arguing more constructively. The goal is not to reach consensus on all of your opinions or share all your values. It's to understand each other's opinions and respect each other's values. So it doesn't mean that you have to change your mind and agree and share the same values as everybody that you're working with, but it's understanding opinions and just having respect for their values without, you know, um, discounting them as incorrect because yours are different. There's a, a quote I heard last week that said, different isn't better or worse. It's just different. I like that. Kind of wild how everything can be impacted by your emotional intelligence and improving and working on your emotional intelligence can completely change your outlook on just about every situation and even help improve your performance at work too, right? Yeah. And that was the third point that um, we were going to get to 
was a person's ability to control their own emotions is negatively associated with their ability to act on a team, which influences team performance negatively. And um, that is because there's conflict and there are issues and the teamwork just isn't there. So performance is impacted as well. So if you're not gonna do it for yourself, which you should, because you can't pour from an empty cup, then at least do it for your team to make their lives less miserable. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we're going to get a little bit further into that with um, how emotional intelligence improves or degrades organizations. So how it influences across your whole company. There are some overlapping concepts with teams and individuals. So some of it you may have heard before, but we'll kind of bring it all together. Um, And the two main areas that um, I pulled out to focus on are workplace appropriateness, which is something we touched on earlier, and turnover. So there's some interesting studies around uh, low versus high emotional intelligence and, um, and retention. This totally reminds me of something you said earlier about appropriate relationships. Oh, about expectations that we put on relationships and then kind of forcing them to be something different than what they were designed to be. So then they completely crumble under the weight of that pressure. It it completely applies here with the workplace appropriateness and the roles that relationships should play. It does. And it worked, you know, when we were talking about teams, it made sense. And when we talk about organizations, like high people with higher emotional intelligence are better at separating their personal life from their work life and not bringing in like the drama from the outside or pushing their ideologies on others, which is something we covered in the entitlement episode. Um, And they tend to have more respect for other people's opinions. Well, it's it's really finding that balance between my workplace is like my family or we're, we're like one big family here, which like I have a love hate relationship with because there are some circumstances where there is healthy boundaries at play. There is an acceptance. And I can see why when there's really healthy work environments, people say, oh yeah, this feels like a family because people are respected, they're appreciated, they're loved. But then you have the other side of that where it's like, oh yikes, this is scary that people are treating this like a family. They're dumping on people expecting to be loved unconditionally. Like it's not your brother or sister. It's in the, again, there's exceptions every way, but it really relate like it really ties into that it really does and it creates like much more positive social relationships when you're not bringing all that stuff in because not everybody's interested in bringing all that stuff into work right so the higher emotional people with higher emotional intelligence will tend to leave theirs at home and then if you have people with the lower emotional intelligence bringing in this drama that's going to be really off-putting and strenuous on relationships at at work. And I do want to like comment here. There are some people who will hear us, who will hear what we just said and hear, ouch, like I, I, that doesn't apply to our workplace. Like we actually do encourage people to bring their whole authentic self and to not just bring a version of them because that's the kind of culture we've curated. And for some people that works in most circumstances that doesn't work. And so you have people who are bringing in who are emotion dumping in the workplace. That's what we're referring to. Yeah, I think there's a difference between showing up as your authentic self and bringing all of your problems to work. So we're talking about the kind of people where 
they they show up to a call and they hijack the first 20 minutes of the call just talking about their personal problems just talking about how much life sucks how hard things are yada 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 and then you are all sitting there like okay look we we love you we care about you we hate this for you but at the same time this isn't really the time or place this call we're supposed to be talking about q3 numbers and metrics and maybe having like having those hard conversations of okay time and place because then you run the risk of hurting people's feelings and nobody wants to do that and it's trying to figure out how do you have those conversations how do you set those boundaries and how do you equip people to approach the workplace knowing that yes they are valued they are respected but there's also boundaries in place and we would love to support you and hear about how hard things are right now but you also have to know the time and place yeah and i think there are two things there so like appropriate relationships and not putting your stuff on somebody else when that's kind of not what your relationship is um and lower emotional intelligence, not being able to decipher when it is appropriate to do that. And then also just respecting, kind of unrelated, but respecting people's time. So when you take up 20 or 30 minutes or even 10 of a call, just kind of dumping your stuff on people, people complain so much about having too many meetings, but if you're spending 10 or 15 or 20 minutes just doing that, then it's really kind of a waste of time. It's hard because you don't really know what to say or how to nip that in the bud without hurting their feelings or making them feel underappreciated. And like, I know that that has historically been a weakness of mine as a manager is when I have people come into meetings and we're trying to be boom, boom, boom here, respecting people's times because I'm all about fraternization, all about that. Like, I do not like fostering a work environment where people aren't friends, right? I mean, it's just the reality sometimes, but... Generally speaking, that's the kind of environment that I like to foster. But then you have people who come in and take that too far. And it's like, oh, this is so uncomfortable. And so then you try and do things without having to directly talk to them of like, hey, guys, we're on a tight schedule today. Here's the agenda for the call. Um, Bring come prepared with your notes, thinking like, okay, sometimes that mitigates it. But then eventually, sometimes it gets to a point where you have to have that uncomfortable conversation, which then leads to people just but every time it's led to people feeling embarrassed and shameful and like, oh, I thought that was a safe place. Like I thought people cared. I'm so sorry. Like I just won't bring my stuff to work anymore and kind of having that dramatic reaction. Yeah, which is more typical of the lower emotional intelligence people as well. This really makes the case for emotional intelligence training at work again, because if you can have everyone in a room, you're teaching everybody the same thing, people will rise up to their different levels, to the next levels beyond where they are. And for some people that is going to be, you know, maybe two or three, and for some that's gonna be six or seven, Uh, but it really will get everybody more on the same page about what is appropriate and what isn't. It also demonstrates the level of respect you have for your other employees that you see their time being wasted and you don't want to tolerate that. You don't want to stand for that, but you also don't want to ostracize the individual who is emotion dumping as we, as we'll say. And so it show it kind of is twofold there. Yeah. It's encouraging to the people who already have higher emotional intelligence. They're like, our manager does really care. And she recognizes that this is, 
you know, a problem too. And it's making my life, you know, easier by kind of confronting the problem. Right. Absolutely. So managers, leaders, as hard as it may sound, as intimidating as it may be, it's so worth it. And it makes such a difference. And for those of you who are on these teams, experiencing the hijacking from your counterpart or your colleague, talk to your manager about doing an emotional intelligence training. I mean, there's there's so many options here and so many ways to handle this without just completely dragging someone through the mud or destroying their feelings. Absolutely. And there's, you know, another side to this inappropriate or appropriate relationships thing in organizations, and this does apply to teams and individuals as well, but people with higher emotional intelligence tend to have better coping skills when things don't go their way, which is something we mentioned on part one. And when people don't have coping skills, they can become combative um, if there's any kind of perceived you know, injustice. I think I've used perceived injustice several times in a few episodes, but um, so higher emotional intelligence, people can regulate their emotions to separate the facts from fiction when things don't go their way. Um, They can separate that decision from the person making the decision and then rationalize the situation in an appropriate way. Uh, And then they can move from negative emotions to positive emotions because they were able to synthesize what really happened rather than just reacting combatively to um, what they perceived happened. So that's another example of workplace appropriateness. Well, and when you talk about that combativeness and when you when you talk about that, Natalie, it also makes me think of another component of this where we're not just talking about people who come in and dump about how terrible their life is or how frustrating their day was. That's the most obvious example and one of the most common. But we're also talking about people who come in and all they want to talk about is political agendas or relational agendas or they want to push other things aside from that. So it's people who come in and all they want to talk about is their viewpoints, their experience. And and there's emotional hijackings that can occur beyond just talking about, oh yeah, I got a flat tire on the way to work. The whole world's against me. This happened, that happened. There's many different ways that this can manifest in. Yeah. So like in life and at work, we all have some inconveniences and impositions. I would say, especially at work, you know, you're with a group of people who come from all kinds of different places and you're solving problems and facing challenges all the time. So of course there are impositions and inconveniences. Like sometimes you don't feel like going in or sometimes you, you know, don't want to go to a meeting or a client's being a problem, but those kind of things are present in all jobs in some capacity. People with higher emotional intelligence are more sportsmanlike, which means they're willing to tolerate those things without complaining about them so much. And they're more likely to keep a positive attitude when things aren't going their way and not take offense when people don't take their suggestions. And they're also more likely to sacrifice their personal interests for the sake of the whole group. And I think this all ties back to something we discussed in episode one on entitlement, which is internal locus of control. And that's when you believe that you have control over your own life. So higher emotional intelligence people tend to believe that they have more control over their own life, where lower 
like as we said before, feels like everybody's out to get them. Um, and that's on the lowest um, end of the spectrum. But it kind of goes back to that conversation we've had several times of you can't be both the victim and the victor. People who have higher emotional intelligence tend to have more of that victor mentality that, yep, things happen, things are hard, but I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep that Rocky Balboa mentality. They keep pushing back. They keep fighting back. Whereas people with the lower emotional intelligence can tend to victimize themselves and see that as like, woe is me, pity party galore, which of course they don't realize that. They don't realize they're constantly throwing pity parties. They don't realize that they're constantly being negative. Yeah, it is really, it's hard sometimes. I mean, everybody faces things like that where it, the easier thing to do would be to just be defeated rather than trying to get through it and get past it and bettering yourself, which is ultimately what comes out on the other side if you keep going. So there are obviously many levels of workplace appropriateness, whether that's interpersonal communication team or organization wide and how you, um, you know, what demands you put on each of those categories. But the other thing that causes issues in organizations, um, particularly with people of lower emotional intelligence, is turnover. So that's employee retention, people leaving the company versus staying. And the research on that was actually pretty interesting to me. So as you can probably imagine at this point, especially if you've been with us through both episodes, lower emotional intelligence is associated with dissatisfaction, unhealthy conflict, gossip, a lot of other undesirable behaviors. And you'd think that that would lead to more of those lower emotional intelligence people quitting, but it doesn't. They tend to stay and just make life more challenging. That is really interesting to think about because logically, when you think about that, you would think, oh, if they're dissatisfied, they're the people who are job hopping or, or who are more likely to leave. But then if you think about it in reality, it's almost never the people that like you would wish would either change or leave that actually leave. It's always the good people who you're like, no, please stay, help me make this better, that actually leave. Yeah. And they kind of, the ones that you don't want to kind of stay and ride the coattails forever. I mean, I've worked at companies where they didn't fire anybody for anything. And then the good people would leave and the challenging people would stay. And that's actually what kind of where I was going with this is the studies show that people high in emotional intelligence have a higher commitment to their jobs and the companies they work for. But when they're in a toxic work environment or they're experiencing some injustice at work, they actually have a higher likelihood of leaving, which is the opposite of what you should be striving for in your business. Also don't think it's too far of a stretch to say people with higher, actually it's not a stretch because we already talked about how the data shows this, that people with higher emotional intelligence also have higher self-esteem and higher self-respect. So when you have that self-esteem and you have that self-respect, you're not really willing to continue to be treated like garbage. Exactly. So it's their well-being, right? So we talked about the, you know, what comes first, well-being or emotional intelligence, and they are more likely to put their well-being first. So while generally they're less likely to think that there's some injustice being committed against them at work because they can take a step back and see the whole picture, and they're also more likely to give people a break or a second chance. When there is actual injustice or toxicity, they'll remove themselves to protect their own peace and well-being. 
from an, from an outside perspective and if you've never been through it, it can sound very selfish and it can sound very like, well, just suck it up, buttercup. But then when you actually live through it and you can take that step back and you can evaluate the situation, I mean, you and I have talked about, we both have several experiences like this where we're like, you know what? This just isn't worth it. This isn't what we deserve. This isn't what we want. And at the end of the day, we do not live to work. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, as they said, it's not for lack of commitment to the job or the company or even the team. It's just that you know they'll go so far until they've had enough. And if there's nothing being done about it, then um, you're really likely to lose the very people that you want to keep. I mean, really what you're saying is people with higher emotional intelligence are able to step back and decide what's worth it. Is this yeah. toxic situation worth the paycheck, worth the hours, worth the blah, blah, blah? Or is the peace of mind that it's disrupting and the stress and the anxiety and depression, whatever else is coming from it, is it worth this? Whereas people with lower emotion, emotional intelligence might not even realize they actually have a choice. Yeah, that's totally right. I mean, it goes back to the victim mentality conversation too, is they feel like they're stuck and the world is against them. And then they, unfortunately, you're stuck with them too. All that to say, I feel like, you know, I've made this sound a lot of like doom and gloom. And that if you have people who have low emotional intelligence, you're totally in trouble and they're going to ruin, you know, your lives and everybody else's. Um, but an important thing to understand there is that it emotional intelligence can be learned and developed in people. So, um, you know, we've mentioned several times throughout this conversation that emotional intelligence training is a really good way to improve outcomes for both the high and low and emotionally intelligent people. Everybody has to learn it at some point. It's just whether you learn it when you're younger, learn it when you're older. And if you don't learn it, then guess what? You're probably part of the problem. Yeah. And well, it carries over from work to home. So when we're talking about well-being and wellness and helping your employees live better lives all around, learning emotional intelligence and developing emotional intelligence will help them throughout their entire lives. Well, it's just like the executive coaching golden rule, if you will. I'm not going to say golden rule, but a golden rule when you do executive coaching of set the example that you want your employees to lead in the sense that if you are at the office until nine o'clock at night, every night, your employees are going to feel like they have to be there. Even if you tell them in a very earnest and very kind and honest way, hey, I'm not expecting of this of you. Please don't feel obligated for this. They're still going to feel that way because they see how you're living. Whereas if you say, hey, guys, it's four o'clock. My kid has a soccer game. I'm not missing it. Peace out. Then it's going to enable your employees to feel, oh, he really does care about his family. She really means it when she says family comes first. And it, it, the, the emotional intelligence goes right along those same lines. When you exhibit it, when you make it a priority, your employees take it more seriously, too. Yep. And it doesn't have to be all wishy-washy, you know, feelings stuff, as I think a lot of people take it when you say emotional intelligence. Like this, These are really skills that will help you interact better with people, have better relationships, less conflict, and overall more satisfaction in your life. 
So if you've related to any of the descriptions we've given, any of the examples, anything that we've said, if it's hit any like, oh, you know what? I get this or I see this here. We're not going to leave you empty handed with just relating to it. We have some action items for you today. Um, Natalie, why don't you walk us through what those action items are that we've talked about so far? I think you have a couple extra ones um, just to tie this in a nice pretty bow. Sure. So my first action item is to take emotional intelligence seriously, but be very clear on the definition of it and why you're taking it seriously when you communicate that with the people who work for you or work with you. So don't fall into the trap of this whole, we have to be you know, empathetic towards everyone as being truly emotionally intelligent. So we mentioned this just a few minutes ago, but emotionally intelligent people understand other people's perspectives, but they don't pander to them if they're not you know, aligned to their values or if they see that you know, their perspective is a detriment to their well-being. So it's all about understanding and respect, but not a false consensus. And a good place to start, we, last time we mentioned um, taking the predictive index assessment to develop self-awareness. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes too. But as we're going up that pyramid we discussed in the beginning, self-awareness is kind of on the lower level. So, well, first of all, I suggest that you test for emotional intelligence and that you do that in the hiring process if you can. Um, but testing people in the workplace, at least if it's a self-assessment to understand the baseline of where they are in their levels of emotional intelligence can be helpful for their personal development. The only assessment that I am familiar with that is heavily scientifically validated, especially for the workplace, is called, you ready for this? The Multidimensional Emotional Intelligence Assessment Workplace Revised. So it's the M-E-I-A-W-R, and we'll put that in the notes because that's a mouthful. Yeah, don't try and write that down. <laughs> no, no. Um, unfortunately, I don't have a way for you to just take that, but we'll give you the website to the company that developed it. It's something that you'd have to pay for. Really, as I hope that you've gathered from these episodes, you're leaving a ton of money, like tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars on the table if you're operating with low emotional intelligence workforce. Because not only are you operating with more conflict and less effective teamwork, but you're losing the people who are great and who will go above and beyond and support you and your team and the whole organization. And you're kind of setting glass ceilings for your organization as well. Yep. I totally agree with that. As I mentioned before, you know, the great news is that emotional intelligence can be developed and overcome with that self-awareness, awareness of others, self-management, social awareness. Um, so invest in research-informed emotional intelligence training and development opportunities, uh, especially with your leadership and management teams, because to Alice's point before, everything trickles down from leadership. So you know, start with leadership, and uh, managers should definitely uh, partake in this, and that will give them a better handle on how to deal with issues like this on their team if you're not able to provide emotional intelligence training for the entire organization. Um, we at the Outstanding Company offer an excellent workshop on emotional intelligence and resilience, which are two very connected things. Uh, and that can be for your whole employee base, a group of managers, or singular teams. Um, and it's actually a multi-week course uh, because it's really hard to teach anybody 
how to be emotionally intelligent in a couple of hours. So um, our training actually gives two weeks between each session so that everyone can digest and apply the information and then come back and get feedback on what they've experienced um, in doing that. And resilience is especially relevant right now with you know economic uncertainty and all the layoffs um, that have been going on in the last couple weeks and um, several months. The last one is um, just don't be afraid to have conversations with people about the importance of emotional intelligence and controlling their emotions. We talked about how it can be a big scary conversation and I totally understand that. But um, you know, remember, it's inappropriate to act out at work. And in many cases, it's a terminable offense. It feels like companies are doing less and less of that. Um, but maybe that's not a great thing. And that is a wrap on part two of our two-week series on emotional intelligence. If you missed part one, definitely go back and check it out where we lay a good foundation on what emotional intelligence is and how it affects the individual. Um, we really hope this was helpful for everyone out there listening. If you have any questions, comments, please feel free to leave us a voicemail at the link in the show notes. We have a little voice message system, or you can email us at hello at hhbpodcast.com. If you haven't already done this, make sure to follow us on LinkedIn. Natalie Grogan is the one who posts a majority of the content. Occasionally, I will get adventurous and log into my LinkedIn and share the content that she posts. But generally speaking, follow Natalie Grogan on LinkedIn and be sure to follow the Outstanding Company on Instagram. Natalie posts a lot of really great content and graphics on there as well. And just like last week, we have some great resources for you in the show notes and at hhbpodcast.com. So be sure to take the next step in developing your emotional intelligence and go check those out. Thank you for listening to the Head, the Heart, and the Briefcase podcast. Before we go, show some love for your favorite podcast by subscribing and leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned for next week where we continue to dive deep into more common workplace issues that leaders like you face every day.